Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 32. And I do want to welcome all of you in both worship services and those that are worshiping from home. Uh, it's a good day uh, to be worshiping the Lord, and I have a message that I'm itching to share. Uh, I've said it the last two weeks, uh, but it is still true. I'll say it again. There is nothing better to be better at than prayer. And so we've taken some weeks and are focusing on prayer and calling it the school of prayer. And I thought before we just jumped into our message time this morning, I would begin by giving you a roadmap of a little bit where we've been and then where we plan to go, Lord willing, in the days to come. So first, let me, let me just give you the three big pieces. We started with the foundations, the foundations that you need to know in order to pray. And then we talked about the most important secret to prayer, which is perseverance. If you don't know how to pray, the best way to learn to pray is to continue to pray. And now I want us to begin to talk about some tools for prayer, some models for prayer. And over the next several weeks, we'll give you these different tools, we'll give you these models, and by doing that, we'll be able to explain precisely now, how is it that we can pray? How can you have a good prayer life, a quality prayer life that draws you closer to God? How can we pray? You know, if you look around and listen to preachers and read books, you'll find a lot of different models for prayer. I think of the model called ACTS, A-C-T-S. Have you heard that? That's a popular uh, memory mnemonic, I guess, to help people pray. Uh, it was interesting. I, I always thought that that was something that was modern and new. Uh, but last year, I read a book. In fact, the very first book, Christian book, written on prayer in the second century and got to the end of the book, and there it was. All those years ago, uh, this has been a model for prayer. Uh, some people use the, the Ten Commandments model uh, from, uh, from, from Martin Luther. I teach a class on Wednesday. We learned about that a few weeks ago. Uh, more and more popular today is something called Lectio Divina, uh, which is uh, probably not a helpful thing. It can quickly go in the wrong direction. A uh, popular way that people pray today is to pray through the rosary, uh, which is not a biblical way to pray. There are a lot of contemporary acronyms and mnemonics. People talk about prayer, P-R-A-Y-E-R, -E and each of those letters stands for something, or the heart prayer, or the past prayer, in each of those letters. But here's what I want to do. I believe that there are three models for prayer that are, of course, biblical and also very helpful in teaching people the basics of prayer and giving people the platform that they can just reach for the stars, reach for the heavens, I should say, and grow in their prayer life. So let me give you the three models. First is something I call chat, having a chat with God, C-H-A-T. I'll tell you what that means shortly. And then the second model is, uh, is praying scripture. Now we're going to spend several weeks on chat because that's going to give us the basics of prayer. 
But then the model I think you're going to be most uh, excited about probably is this praying scripture model that we'll get to in a few weeks. And then, of course, we've saved the best for last, the Lord's Prayer. You can't beat the model that Jesus gives, and we'll close our series uh, with that. But today I want to begin by focusing on chat, C-H-A-T. I believe that this covers all the biblical elements of prayer and, and covers them really in the best order for somebody to have a healthy daily prayer time. It's something that's easy to remember. Here are the subjects that we're going to cover. C stands for confess. So we'll learn to confess our sins. H stands for honor. We will learn to honor the Lord. A stands for ask. We'll probably spend two weeks on that. We're going to learn what the Bible says about asking for ourselves, and we'll learn what the Bible says about asking for other people, all in the name of Jesus. And then finally, we'll end with thanksgiving, how it is we thank the Lord. So today, though, we're focused on confession. C stands for confession. And we're going to spend a lot of time this morning in Psalm 32, but I want to start right in the middle of the chapter. I want to look at verse 5. And so if you're looking with me, Psalm 32, verse 5, the passage says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. Now, notice what the psalmist says. He acknowledges his sin, he tells God about his sin, and he refuses to conceal it. He refuses to cover it up. The uh, the Hebrew word there is yada, and I'll show you in a minute why that's important. He says, I will not yada, I will not cover up my sin, but I will, I will reveal it. I will acknowledge it before the Lord. Now, with that in mind, uh, I want us to go to Proverbs 28. And we can show this to you on the screen because we're going to come right back here to Psalm 32 in a moment. Uh, but listen to Proverbs 28, 13. The writer says, the one who conceals his sin, same word there, same Hebrew word, the one who conceals his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces his sins, he will find mercy. And so you see in the first verse we read, he did not conceal him. He did not cover up his own sins. And then we learn in Proverbs 28, 13, that if you do cover up your own sins, that you will not prosper. And then now we're back in Psalm 32.1. I want to show you how we pull this together. Psalm 32.1 begins by saying, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Now here's the fact. We have sins in our lives. And none of those sins can go uncovered. You can cover them up or you can allow God to cover them up by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And the choice you make there determines so many other things in your life. The choice you make there, whether you will cover your sins or you will ask God to cover your sins, will determine your joy, it says here. It'll determine your peace. It'll go a long ways toward determining the relationships and the health of the relationships in your life. If you choose to cover your sin, There are consequences that follow. But if we allow God to cover our sin, then there's joy, freedom, peace, and forgiveness to follow. So this morning, I want us to talk about how we can take our sins to the Lord. Instead of covering our sins, we can confess them and have God 
cover our sins. Now, to get there, to give you some specifics, and we're going to be very practical this morning, to give you some specifics on how to confess your sins, first there are some foundational truths that you need to know. We'll start with those. First, unconfessed sin is the source of many struggles in life. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, that is going to be the source, that is the source of so many of the difficulties that we face. Now this takes us right back to Psalm 32.1. Look at it again. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so if our sin is covered by God, that's what he's talking about here, then we have joy. If it's not, then we have the absence of joy. Now let's just continue to read Psalm 32. Verse 2 says, how joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so you have joy in your life if God does not charge you with iniquity because, verse 1, you have not covered your sins, you have not hidden your sins, but you have confessed them and they've been covered by the Lord. Now he's going to get very specific in verse 3. He says, when I kept silent about my sins, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. He's talking about how fragile he was, how, how difficult it was to live life with unconfessed sins. He says, before I confess my sins, my, my bones were brittle. He tells us in verse Verse four, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer heat. He says is the, the guilt and the oppression because I had this, these unconfessed sins in my life was unbearable. And then verse five, he turns the corner. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not conceal my iniquity or he did not conceal it any longer. He had before, that's why he suffered. Now he's confessing. He goes on to say, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Many of the struggles, listen church, many of the struggles that you and I face in life, we face because in our lives there's sins unconfessed. Now people don't like to hear that because it makes us responsible for our own uh, relationship health or our own emotional or mental health. And certainly there can be some other things that can cause difficulty in life. No question about it. But the Bible says without question that if we have unconfessed sin, it'll always bring poor health, emotional health, relationship health, mental health. Many of the struggles that we face in life simply because we have unconfessed sin, unconfessed sin. It, it's interesting if you were to turn over a few pages in the book of Psalms, you could come to Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51 is a prayer that David prayed, King David prayed, following his sin with Bathsheba. Now, most of you know that story, and David uh, had a relationship with Bathsheba that was an ungodly relationship. And then uh, really that sin turned into another sin, which turned into another sin. And it was, a, it was a terrible mess. And so God convicts David's heart. David goes before God and he confesses his sin. And that confession is recorded for us, Psalm 51. If you're ever struggling to confess your sin, turn to Psalm 51 and just read it to the Lord. I've done that a few times. Sometimes we just need... 
uh, you know, the, the priming of the pump, and, and that's a great place to turn. But I want to share with you just a couple of verses that David said when he confessed his sins, things that David said to the Lord. Verse 8, it says, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. David said, before I confessed my sin, the weight of guilt was just as if it were crushing my bones. And then he says in verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a, a willing spirit. He said, before I confessed, I had no joy and I had no strength. But when I confessed, then I knew the joy of the Lord and I had the strength. Unconfessed sin is the source of many of life's struggles. That's the first foundational piece that you need to understand in order to confess your sins. The second one is this. Sin is not bad because of the problems it causes. Now that may seem odd, but listen. What's so wrong with sin is not just that there are consequences to sin. Now we talk often about the consequences. We teach our children about the consequences of sin, right? If you sin, here are the consequences. If you do this, here's what's going to happen. And, and, and we preach about the consequences of sin. I preach about the consequences of sin. If you sin, here's what's going to happen. If you sin, here's what's going to happen. We even share the gospel by talking about the consequences of sin, right? We say the wages of sin is death, and we talk about dying, we talk about hell, we talk about eternal death, and we say you need to choose Christ in order to avoid that Christless grave and eternity without God. We talk about sins and consequences, and we should, because there are sins, and with every sin there is a consequence. But listen, the consequence is not the worst part of sin. Sin is not bad primarily because it brings bad consequences. Sin is bad because it grieves the heart of the Father. Let that sink in. The worst thing about sin, the worst thing about my sin is not that I might get in trouble for it, not that it might diminish the quality of my life. The worst thing about my sin is that it breaks the heart of God. If God is holy, if God loves us and is kind toward us, if we love God, then to know God's standard and to intentionally violate God's standard is to grieve him, and that's the worst part of sin. I um, tried to think of the best way to illustrate this, and there's not a happy story to illustrate it, but I'll, I'll share an unhappy one. Uh, we, uh, we know of the pain uh, that comes when, when one partner in a marriage is unfaithful to the other partner, right? And so somebody uh, commits adultery and uh, they have relationships outside of their marriage and it just brings heartbreak to the other partner. Not something that can't be forgiven and overcome and, and restoration certainly from the Lord uh, can, uh, can be in that marriage and it can grow and be healthy. But but there is, there is a pain that is undeniable. But let's talk about that pain. Why is it that the offended party experiences such pain? I mean, if you think about the sin of adultery, it has not cost the family any money. I mean, I suppose it could, but just that sin, it, it has not cost the family any money. It has not caused any physical pain. It has not destroyed any property. So what's the big deal? 
Why, why is this such a big deal to us? Why does it hurt so badly when somebody is guilty of this? Well, it hurts because what it does is it, is it breaks the trust. It, it breaks the honor and the love and the pledge and the commitment and the adoration that, that you have for the other person. It severs that, and that's what causes the great pain. So listen, when we know God's standard and God's expectation, and we intentionally violate that, we don't cost God any money. We don't break something that belongs to God. But what we have done is broken the love, the trust, and the honor that God, that God deserves. The worst part of sin is not the consequence. It's the grief that it brings to our, our Lord. There's another reason why it's important to, to know this. Often when we think of our sin just in terms of consequences, we will do a cost-benefit analysis of our sin. You know what I mean by that? We know that if I commit this sin, then here, here are the likely consequences of that. If I sin, this will happen. And sometimes we think we're clever and we say, I think I'm willing to pay the consequences. I mean, if I could do this sin, if this is what's going to happen, I'm willing to, I'm willing to suffer this as long as I get to do that. Well, that is a crazy way to look at sin because you're looking at sin like a business transaction. Like you do this and here are the consequences and I'm going to weigh which one is better or worse. But no, sin is not primarily about consequences. Sin is about grieving the heart of God. And if we'll understand sin as breaking God's heart, then no analysis will ever make sin okay in our minds. Sin is not bad primarily because of the problems it causes. And then the third foundational truth you need to know in order for us to learn to confess is that forgiveness is all about the character of God. Forgiveness is all about the character of God. This is good news. There is a verse in 1 John some of you perhaps are thinking about it. Very well-known verse. I'll show it to you on the screen. 1 John 1, 9. This is the verse about confession, right? And so you've, you've learned this verse. Maybe, maybe even as a child you knew this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we're going to leave that verse up for just a moment because I want you to look at it closely. You've probably read it a hundred times. Maybe you have quoted it a few times. You have held on to it when you have been guilty of sin. But there's one word here I bet you haven't really paid attention to. There's an there's a odd word in the middle of this. Do you see it? There's a word that seems at first glance to be out of place. If we confess our sins... He is faithful to forgive our sins. That makes a lot of sense. He is faithful to, you know, to show his love for us and to forgive all of our sins. But look at the next word. He is faithful and just, just to forgive our sins. That seems like an odd word here because we connect justice with punishment. Uh, we, we think about God is just, and that means that God punishes every sin. He is a good judge. He never just shrugs off sin and says, it's no big deal. If he did that, he would not be perfectly just. But because he's just, he always punishes sin. So how does that fit in this verse? That he is faithful and just to forgive our, our sin. Well, this is... This is a beautiful word when you understand it in this verse. Listen, let me just go through the gospel. 
First of all, God says the wages of sin is death. You know that? You've been in our church very long. I think we say that every single Sunday. If you sin and you have, what you deserve because of your sin is death, separation from God forever. That's what sin ultimately brings. Now that's God's standard. All of us have sinned. So all of us deserve to die. And because God is perfectly just, he is not at the end of your life going to say, I'm not going to worry about your sin. Don't worry about that. Never mind. We're just going to pretend like it didn't happen. But no, God is just and no sin will go unpunished. But here's, here's the good news. Christ stepped forward and he paid the price, the penalty for your sins. If you've trusted Christ for what he did upon the cross, if you've been adopted into the family of God because you trusted Christ and, and you made him the Lord of your life, then Christ has paid the penalty for your sins. Now here's the justice of God. Because God is just, he will not accept two payments for the same debt, right? Why does God forgive me when I call upon him? Because he's just and he's already been paid for that debt. And so God accepts my plea, but God accepts the blood of Christ as payment for my sin so that I am forgiven because God is just. Now, here's why that's important. Oftentimes when we confess our sins, we think that somehow we have to muster up enough emotion. We have to muster up enough uh, enough groveling before God that somehow we have to convince him, Lord, please, I promise, I promise, 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 I will never do this again. I promise I will never, I never will promise. I don't know all the words, but God, please, please. And we just beseech the Lord and we, and we don't understand. God is not forgiving you because all of a sudden you've shown a certain amount of contrition. If God required your contrition like that, then God would be requiring those sins to be paid for twice. No, God is just. And the sins have already been paid for. And so God forgives me because God loves me, but also because God is just. God is just. Forgiveness is about the character of God. It comes down to this then. If you're a child of God, if you have once for all trusted that Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to forgive your sins, and you have surrendered your life to him, then the matter of forgiveness is settled. It's settled because God is just. If you haven't, I'm telling you, all the begging in the world is not going to change the guilt or the consequences, the eternal consequences of sin because God is just. You see, it works in both directions. I am forgiven as a child of God because he is just. But if I'm not a child of God, I am not forgiven and will not be forgiven because God is just. And so it, it teaches us that the most important thing we could ever do is to trust Christ. It's to have that time, that once for all time in our life when we trust Christ and we surrender to him, asking him to be the Lord of our lives, trusting Christ, and then the justice of God brings the forgiveness of sin. There's one more foundational thing. Then we're going to get to the practical part, but this is important. 
all sin is first against the Lord. Now, that might seem like an odd thing to say because you're thinking, well, I know people who have sinned and they sin first against me. Or maybe you're thinking about your own sin and you know that you have sinned against other people. Well, and in a sense, you have sinned against people and people have sinned against you. But in a primary sense, no, sin is always first against the Lord. Now, if we go back to Psalm 51, that, where we were reading about David and Bathsheba earlier, verse 4, which I can show you on the screen, says this. Against you, David said, and you alone. He's talking to the Lord. He says, against you, Lord, and you alone, I have, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. And we'll stop there because, because that really is the, that, that's the root of the problem. David says, my sin is first and foremost against the Lord. Now, our pushback would be, well, it sure seems like you also sinned against Bathsheba. And you had an improper relationship with her. And there was a real difference with the balance of power there. And so in our day, we would call that other thing, sexual harassment. Who knows what may have happened? We would uh, look at the cover-up to the sin. And, and he really had Bathsheba's husband killed. We would call that murder today. It, it, it's easy to look at this and say, no, David, you didn't sin against God. First, you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, as the, as the king of the nation of Israel. You sinned against the country. But no, he says, I've sinned against God. You I've sinned against. You alone I've sinned against. Now, here's the truth that we have to learn. We may have hurt our fellow man but we've sinned against God. God is, the, God is the one who has created the standard. God is the one who is the lawgiver. And when we break the law and we sin, it seems against a person, what we have done first is we have sinned against the Lord. That's why we have to go to the Lord to confess, to confess our sin. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for a few reasons. First of all, it takes away the excuse of the sinfulness of others. Sometimes when we talk about our sin, we'll say, I sinned, but the reason I sinned is because somebody else sinned first. first. Somebody else sinned before I sinned. And so she sinned, and so I sinned. They put me in a bad situation, so I sinned. They said something to me, so I said something to them. And, and we often blame our sin on other people. But listen, no, the reason you sinned is because you sinned. The reason I sin is because I sinned. Now, somebody else may have sinned before or after, and that's between them and the Lord. But if we sin, it's because we have chosen to sin. And it's not until you understand that that you can truly confess your sin. As long as you think your sin is really somebody else's fault, you'll never confess your sin. And so it's important that we understand first that sin is against the Lord. It, it, it also is important because it takes away the element of secrecy. Uh, sometimes people believe that as long as their sins are secret, that they're no big deal. Now, nobody would say it with those words, but here's how you see this. Often when we, when we talk to people who, who feel bad about their sins... The truth is, they don't feel bad about their sins. They feel bad that they got caught in their sins. You know the difference? I mean, I can't look into anybody's heart, but, but there have been times when I've been talking to someone who was just crushed with sin, and they're, and they're, oh, I'm sorry, and I wish this hadn't happened. And there's sometimes, just in my spirit, I'm thinking, you're not sorry for the sin. You're just sorry you got caught in the sin. 
Now, why would getting caught be worse than just sinning? Well, because somehow we think our sin is not against God. If my sin is just against my wife, then if my wife doesn't know, then it's not such a big deal, right? But if I understand that my sin is against God, then whether I get caught or not is almost immaterial to this. Because God knows if my sin is first and foremost against God, then I'm caught, right? Whether anybody else ever knows or not, I'm caught. And so we have to understand that all sin is first sin against the Lord. Now, now that we know that, that unconfessed sin will cause problems in our lives, we understand that the real problem with sin is not the problems, it's that we've broken the heart of God. Once we understand that God forgives us because he's just in the character of God, and forgiveness is ours because we're children of God, and once we understand that all sin is first sin against the Lord, then we are ready to learn quickly how it is we can confess our sins. So let me give you some practical one, two, three steps. Here's how to confess your sin. This is the first part of prayer. And so we said a week or so ago that maybe starting with a prayer list is not the most practical way to, to begin our prayer. Nothing against prayer lists. You just have to understand how to use them. How should we start with prayer? Well, if you do C-H-A-T, the first step is to confess your sins. How do we do that? Confess our sins. Number one, examine your life. Oftentimes confession is, is what we do when, when some big event has happened in our lives and we've sinned in some way that we consider very significant and we feel the guilt of the Lord on us and so we're uncomfortable about that and, and so we confess. We go before the Lord, oh, I'm so sorry I did this. I wish I had not done this. And, and we're confessing some big event before the Lord. Now, that's good. We should confess like that. But what I'm trying to teach you is how to confess every single day of your life. If your confession just occurs when there's some big event and God just brings such incredible conviction to your heart that you don't have a choice, then, then you're missing most of confession. The, the, the biggest part of confession is just what happens every single day. So how do you do that? Well, it begins by examining your life. Every day... We should stop and think over the last day, what have I done, the previous day maybe, what have I done that's violated the standard of God? Psalm 139, 23 and 24, the psalmist says, search me God and know my heart, test me and know my concerns, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. There's this pattern. Old Testament, New Testament, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. let a person examine himself. Every day, church, every day, we ought to spend a few minutes looking into our hearts and looking over our last day and confessing our sins to the Lord. It begins with examining our hearts. We should ask ourselves, what actions have we done that were sinful? What actions have we failed to do that we should have done? What attitudes have we had that have not been God-honoring? Where have we missed an opportunity to serve, to, to speak uh, on behalf of Christ, to sacrifice to someone, with someone, and, and show the love of Christ? We ought to think through the different contexts. I ought to think about my home life. I ought to think about my work life. I ought to think about how I relate to the community or some group of people I'm in. And we ought to ask, is there something that I need to confess? 
if we just wait until there's something big, then this will be a part of our prayer life that will atrophy. It'll shrink up to nothing and we'll never have the prayer life. We'll never have this communication with God that we so desperately want to have. It has to start with examining our lives. Now, the next thing that's a part, practical part of confession is we need to embrace the goal of repentance, not ceremony. We need to see our confession as a mechanism for change and not just a ceremony to alleviate our guilty feelings. Now, oftentimes people will confess their sins just privately. People will confess their sins with no remorse and no desire or plan to ever change. It's just their little private ceremony so that they'll feel better about themselves. You, you know, I know you know what I'm talking about. We sin and we're guilty, and so we come before the Lord and we make a list of our sins. Lord, forgive me of this, forgive me of this, forgive me of this, check, check, check. And we feel better because we've done this little ceremony and we've said the words and we've asked for forgiveness and now we just move on. And it's more about the ceremony. It's more about the fact that we have said it to the Lord than it is any real desire to change. I think about what Samuel said to the first king of Israel, King Saul. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Saul, by the way, had, he had sinned in a great way and then he had a worship service and he thought that would all make it okay. And so here's what the prophet said. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. What he said is, you know, your, your ceremonies are ceremonies. But what's most important is obedience. And when we confess our sins, what we're, what we're not just trying to do is have some ceremony so that we'll feel better, some little private moment that makes us feel better. We're trying to change. We're trying to get the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God to help us to change. Repentance isn't a ceremony. It's always, it should always be a mechanism for, for change. If we understand if we don't understand about confession and repentance, if we don't understand that it is, it is all about change instead of ceremony, we'll never truly confess our sins. Second um, Corinthians 7.10, listen to this. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. We should be sorry for our sins and we confess them so that there's real change in our lives. And that brings me to number three. Don't list your sins, discuss your sins. So exactly how do I confess my sins? Pastor, I've, I, I, I want to pray tomorrow morning. I get up and I, and I want to pray and I'm going to start with confession, C-H-A-T. So how exactly do I do this? Well, the danger is that you're going to list your sins before the Lord instead of discussing your sins with the Lord. Confession is not, okay, in my examination, I've come up with five things. I had a bad attitude when I got home from work. I uh, failed to speak for Christ when I had an opportunity in this situation and I uh, lost my temper in this situation. So Father, forgive me for A, B, and C, and I list them and on I go. No, we don't need to list them. 
we need to discuss them. Let me tell you some ways to do that. Number one, call it a sin. Say, Father, I did this, and I'm thankful that you brought it to my mind because I want to tell you that I know that was wrong. I don't have an excuse. It was my, my doing. It's a sin. No matter how you measure it, it was a violation of your standard. And then B, secondly, take responsibility. Lord, I did this. I can't blame it on somebody. It's not because somebody else did something. It's not because life is hard. It's not because there's a lot of stress. I chose to do this. I'm a child of God, and I I am dead to sin. I didn't have to choose this, but I did. And then explain to God how you went wrong. This is not to excuse the sin, but But in order to change, you need to know how you got in the situation you got into. Father, I recognize that I exposed myself to some temptation that I shouldn't have. I I recognize that I was having a phone call with somebody that's probably just not really healthy for me to have a phone call with that person. Father, I realized that that, that I I had whatever. And you talked to God about why you ended up in that sin. And then finally, ask for a way of escape. The Bible says that God always gives us a way of escape and talk to God about it. God, I'm looking back at that sin and there was a way I could have handled it better and here's what it was. When I went home and I was in a bad mood and and I let my attitude, my ungodly attitude spill out to my family, I recognized that what I should have done was sit in my car for 60 seconds and just have a little prayer time and ask for power and patience and peace and then walk into the house. God, you gave me a way out of that and talk to God. So don't list your sins Discuss your sins. Discuss your sins. So that's how we, that's how we confess. C-H-A-T, if we're going to start with confession, and we should, examine your hearts. Approach the sins, Lord, I want to change. And then talk to God about every sin. Talk to God about every sin. Now, I want to give you uh, a pro tip and some homework and you're not going to like this, and you're going to think that I'm no longer a Baptist. But, um, but let me share something with you. Because I, I know this is one of those things that we, that we desire to do. But the actual practice of this doesn't usually match our desire. So let me give you two things to do. Two things to do. If you do these things for five days, uh, I promise you it'll be, it'll be life-changing. Number one... Speak your confession aloud. Now, the way most of us pray most of the time is silently, right? Is that how you pray? That's how I pray most of the time. But that is a, that is a way of praying that's, that's not a biblical innovation. That's really something that, that we've developed in our time and maybe a, a few centuries before. But if you look at the biblical pattern for prayer, it's not this silent prayer. There may be some silent prayers in the Bible, but very, very few. And that's never the primary pattern of prayer. When people pray in the Bible, they pray aloud. They pray aloud. Now, there's no command that says you have to pray aloud, so you're not sinning if you pray silently. But I'm telling you, if you struggled with this, try this. At least for your confession time, maybe not your entire prayer time, but at least for your confession for the next five days, would you pray it aloud? It'll be a very different feeling. If you've never done this before, the first day you're going to think I'm nuts. The second day you're just going to be mad. The third day you're going to start to get it. The fourth day you're going to like it. The fifth day you'll be hooked. Okay? Pray your confession time aloud. 
That's, as I said, not a biblical command, but it certainly is the biblical practice. And it is so different from the way most of us pray. And we're frustrated about our prayer life. What well, could it be that something as simple as that might change the tide? Now, the second one, you, th you thought the first one was odd. Confess your sins with a different posture of prayer. Uh, just as praying silently is some modern innovation, really, for prayer, so is our practice of sitting in a chair with our head bowed and our eyes closed and addressing God in that manner. That is not ever uh, a primary biblical pattern for prayer. I'm, in fact, I don't think you'll find it anywhere in the Bible. If you do, then, then I will uh, stand corrected, but it'll be just some little minor uh, instance in the Bible. That's not how people pray. Now, again, there's no command that says you have to have one posture or the other, but if you're struggling in your prayer life, I promise you this will add some emphasis and it'll change your approach. So here's my ask. At least during the confession part of your prayer, have a different posture. Let me read to you some passages. Psalm 28, 2. Listen to the sound of my pleading when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your holy city. How did the psalmist confess his sins here? He stood up and he put his hands in the air. I'm just letting that sink in with some people. You, you just can't imagine that, could you? But that was a common way. In fact, probably the most common way to pray Psalm 95, 6, come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. How did they pray here? Not sitting in a, in a chair with head bowed and eyes closed, but he knelt his whole body before the Lord. You might say, well, pastor, those are Old Testament passages. Well, you're right, but you find the same thing in the New Testament. Listen to Jesus, Mark chapter 11, verse 25 and I could quote a lot of Jesus verses here, but, but just for one, he says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him and your father in heaven, and he gives some instructions. But how does Jesus just assume that you're going to conduct your prayer time? Standing up, standing up. We could go to the apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 2.8. He says, therefore, I want men in every place to pray Lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. How did Paul think we'd be praying? Standing up, hands in the air. Now, I don't pray like that all the time. I don't pray like that most of the time. You're not more spiritual if you do or less spiritual if you don't. There's no command for some certain posture. I want to get all of that out. But if you want to know how to supercharge your confession time, say it aloud for a week and stand up or kneel down and approach God with some special reverence and talk about the sin in your life and how you want that to change and ask God to pour his forgiveness into you. And it'll be a life-changing experience. You know, we often, we often think, if we're just honest, we often think of our confession time as the, as the part of prayer we don't like. Would you agree with that? I mean, I love to pray for things. I love to thank God for things. I love to pray for other people. But I don't want to confess because that's the painful part. That's the part I don't like to do. And, and consequently, that's the tiny little part of my prayer. I try to get through the confession as fast as I can so I can get to the dessert. But church, could it be that we've gotten that completely backwards? 
Could it be that the most precious part of prayer is confessing our sins? Could it be that the, that, the, that the part we ought to look forward to the most, that we ought to be most excited about, is confession? I, I'm telling you, church, it is. Because the truth is we're guilty of sin. It's not that if I don't have a time of confession, then I wasn't guilty. I am guilty. I am guilty. And confession is the time that I get to take all that junk in my life and I get to carry it to the cross of Jesus and I can leave it there and every bit of it is forgiven. Not because I'm particularly contrite, not because I, 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 I use some words that express some extreme emotion, but because God is just and Jesus has paid the price. The confession time of our prayer ought to be the favorite time of our prayer. I read a book yesterday by D.A. Carson. I wish everybody would read this book called Praying with Paul. Just a book about how Paul, the Apostle Paul prayed. Excellent book. And I want to read to you just a tiny little part of it, and we'll close with this. But listen, Dr. Carson said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist if he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. And the best part of our prayer is not when we ask him to give us stuff. The best part of our prayer is when we, we, when we embrace him as our savior. Father, here's the junk in my life. I am so thankful that Jesus is my savior. Every prayer we pray in the morning, ought to be a prayer that starts with confession. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father, I confess that I have often skipped confession. But I recognize now that that ought to be the focus, that that's my greatest privilege. That is the highlight of my relationship with you because Jesus is my savior. Father, I want to become a man of prayer like I've never been before. And I, I believe that our church is filled with people with that same desire today. And I know that that journey begins with becoming a man of confession. Teach me, pull me to you and help me confess my sins. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.